0: Good evening. Good to see you, Colin. It's a long time to see. Good to see you guys.
1: Yeah, I feel pumped after all those tunes, man. There's so many, so many of those tunes I haven't heard for ages, and you just really appreciate all of a sudden how good they are. Right, Jay Z and Linkin Park is just amazing.
0: Yeah, I really enjoy it. I usually spend like an hour just playing music, letting people filter in and, and kind of getting ideas as to who's it's good be on vibe. It's a good vibe. It yeah. really is. I'm pumped. Cool, cool. Well, we're glad to have you. Um, so this is episode.
2: 19, I think. Is that right, Trami? 19? Uh, yeah. Yeah. How's yeah.
1: it going, Colin? Uh, well, I wet my mute button. I'm really well, Trami. How are you? I'm good. I'm
2: doing well. I'm so excited. I'm a huge fan. I, I love your YouTube videos. Um, I've been in the industry for two years, so a lot of my learning is, is all thanks to those videos. They're awesome.
1: That's very kind. Thank you. And it's, it's really, uh, I really appreciate uh, the invite tonight and to be a very small part of this amazing community that i i i've really admired watching this kind of growth uh, of, of this amazing environment that you guys have developed it's it's really impressive
2: it's, yeah uh, yeah it's pretty it's awesome. crazy
0: and it really started with uh, your podcast actually um i think uh i got on your podcast and then the very next week was our first uh, haunted hacker podcast Right. So, and I actually borrow a few things from your podcast too. I like the uh, the one word game where you say a word and the <laughs> person has to, to tell you what they're thinking. I, I really like that. Um, so anyways, without further ado, we'll get started. Um, night, week 19, uh Hunter Hacker Podcast, news, no news is good news. It's all the same stuff. Malware, ransomware, um, Microsoft got smacked last week or week before. Uh, nothing really... Groundbreaking or earth shattering or, or stop the press type stuff this past week. Um, one thing I did want to say is that after last episode, um, we ended up having a um, the company that was on Range Force uh, had a call with them, and they're actually going to be one of our new sponsors for the podcast. And uh, they gave out. I think it was a total of five licenses for their platform for the cyber fortress. Um, and there's going to be more of that as well as look forward to a CTF type competition using range force as the platform for the actual competition itself. Um, and they also want to dive off into the esports. Um, we had talked about it about a year ago, starting a, Esports uh, type tournament for hackers. Um, so we can't let the gamers get all the good uh, prizes and all the million dollar payouts and all that stuff. Uh, so we're going to start our own esports league um, centered around cybersecurity and red teaming and blue teaming. Uh, so I think it'd be really cool. The idea, the concept behind it is have a timed event um each team gets to play offense and defense. So it'll be broken down to like halves. Um, so the hackers will actually have to play defense. So that'll, that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, so that's that's good news. And of course, Tech Strong TV is still you know going strong with our with our podcast, um, airing them three times a week. Uh it's just really awesome of them. Um and what else? I know I had one more thing to talk about. Um, I'm sure it will come to me. Uh, oh yeah! So I did University of Georgia. Trammy and I did um, last week uh, for their cybersecurity club at the university. is really cool. I had a good time. Um, and I had a, another conference earlier last week that I had to attend to the Cybersecurity 2021, which was really cool. It was all virtual, all pre-recorded. Um, showed up for the questions and answers and, and it was really cool. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Uh of course UK is as hot as usual with all the conferences. Um check the listings for the virtual conferences going on. I know future Cybersecurity London has one going on soon. Um, I'm not sure who's speaking at that one. Uh, and there's several other several other conferences around London and the US. So This week, we have Colin Hardy from InfoSec Real slash InfoSec Journeys. Did you, Colin, did you drop InfoSec Journeys or is that still kind of
1: yeah, no, we dropped it. We went, in fact, you were the first episode of Infosec real, uh, when we kind of rebranded. Um, it's awesome. Yeah. And we we kind of started live talking about, you know, are oh, we cool to speak to people about their career pathways and journeys, hence the name. But it was a little bit cheesy when we kind of like the more we went through it. And actually, what yeah. we discovered is like talking about the real life is a yeah. bit, yeah, bit like, more pertinent, I reckon.
0: Yeah, what I found after, after I started the podcast was that people like, the podcast like you have, the the genuine, you know, let's just talk and see where it goes type environment. Um, I think people are getting really burned out on the vendor specific uh, podcasts that, you know, they, they every week they're touting a new product and, and really it's just a, a platform to sell a product. Uh, next thing you know, we're going to have certification companies with their own podcasts at that point. I think I'm going to have to unplug from the grid completely. <laughs> <laughs> so... Colin um tell us tell us briefly introduce yourself tell us who you are what you do the numerous things you do and uh we'll start there
1: oh yeah well again thank you for having me I'm Colin Hardy I go by the online uh, moniker of CyberCDH and uh yeah I guess I've been working in InfoSec for best part of the last decade or so um I know um, at least one of your other uh, previous um, interviewees on this on this podcast aka Steve Watts uh, who I used to I used to work with Steve, and so he's my my kind of beard idol um, amongst other things um, you know you
2: mentioned that in one of your podcasts about his beard so he's a true fan
1: and he's high well I mean his profile picture is giving it away but he's hiding his true look right because it's probably even more impressive than the profile picture we see on the on the screen at the moment um, but yeah, so I, um, I Steve really g- gave me my first kind of big break, if you like, into the world of of infosec directly. I used to be involved in kind of e crime, e fraud, all that kind of stuff beforehand. Um, but yeah, at uh, a certain financial institution, Steve and I um, collided and uh, and worked together for a number of years, and I kind of fell in love with malware and malware incident response and reverse engineering and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, and in that environment. It's just a complete pressure pot, pressure cooker um, where you have an amazing opportunity to learn super quickly about the industry and the threats and the bad guys and the good guys and and everything in between and financial challenges of businesses to to combat these threats and all the rest of it. Um, And and yeah, lately I work for an internet service provider here in the UK um, and have done for a few years now. Uh, where I lead, I, I'm very privileged to lead uh, an exceptional team of people who work 24/7 to to protect the internet for about five million customers here in the UK. Um, and outside of that, as you have alluded to, I I have been running a, a YouTube channel for the best part of the last three years or so, which is my because I have this love of malware. I don't get to reverse engineer malware every day in my job anymore, but that's my little outlet where I can I can go and flex my technical brain and share it with the wider world um and and i guess as part of my own personal selfish development i i find it cool to speak to people and learn about people in the industry hence the reason why ashley and i started the infosec real podcast which is opened my eyes to the industry no end um, and I found out so many cool things from so many awesome people including your good self Mike on two occasions now and I'm really pleased that you, you did take the time to speak to us uh, because it was one of my most favorite episodes um, most crazy episodes but most my most favorite as well so um, so yeah I guess that's me in a nutshell
2: that's what i like about your podcast um i like i love the conversation because it's it's casual and i feel like you guys keep it really real and authentic and it's it's nice i don't i don't get the sense that you've got this professional filter on you know so it's it's nice to kind of like see you guys outside of work and kind of see what your life is like and how security plays a part of that
1: yeah I'm, yes. I'm glad that comes across, and it's funny, actually, because most of the time we it's actually in work time. Um, but we just kind of <laughs> oh my gosh, like <laughs> so I
2: co so this is like uh, like my third time co-hosting. So I actually watch your videos and like watch the way you co-host, and I'm always saying, gosh, he's so natural. Colin is just <laughs> killing it. <laughs> I'm, I'm like trying to pick up tips on like, you know, how to be a better uh, co-host. So, <laughs> well, that so I,
1: insane. that's insane, but yes. very kind of you to say, but no, that's uh, very kind of you. Yeah,
0: that's true. I mean, yeah, the, the podcast is really cool. And uh, it, a lot of people don't know, but I think me, Colin and Steve actually have a common denominator between the three of us um, as far as professional uh, career goes uh so that, that that was really interesting we found that out when i was on <laughs> a podcast with colin and then later on i found out that steve was also part of that alumni which is really crazy um so and anyway, i'm
1: finding out more and more that this industry is so small it's very it's small. crazy it's very it's, small
0: yeah. uh, and then when you when you combine you know not just this industry but then you combine like law enforcement which is another small industry and, and small circle it just, yeah, it's really crazy how closely connected we all are. Um, I, I don't even think it's six degrees anymore. It's probably more like two or three. <laughs> uh, so you are in charge of a security team and running a podcast and, of course, dealing with the, the pandemic and, and working from home and, and all that good stuff. Um, what does your day-to-day look like running a security team from the house? It's a great question.
1: Uh, and and, that, and my, my working day has definitely changed uh, mm. since COVID, right? Um, but I, what I will say is m- certainly my current employer, less so our com- common denominator, but my current employer mm. is, was always super flexible about where and when people worked. Right. Um, and so my, my, the office where I work is probably near enough a two-hour drive away for me. Um, so, you know, four hour, three, four-hour commute round trip. So it wasn't really that appealing for me to go in every single day. Um, and so I would interface with my team two or three days a week and then two or three days a week we'd be at home anyway, before COVID. Right. And then COVID came along um, and uh, of course, everybody is is now working remotely in our organization pretty much. Um, and so the whole of my team is is remote, but weirdly we work a lot closer together because like many of us in the industry, we all quite like being sat at our desks on our own with our headphones on. <laughs> but, you know, we can chat more on Teams or on Slack. We can jump on a call and just quickly talk about an issue. We don't have to, you know, if we want to go to the bathroom, there's not a queue, you know, all that kind of stuff. I guess the only kind of pain is I've got to go and make my own lunch, lunch every day, but I can deal with that if I'm honest with you. So um, I guess my, my working day, really, I, I one of the key things I wanted to make sure early post COVID was that my team stay connected Mm -hmm. and so we introduced a daily call uh, which some people didn't want to do because it's more calls in the calendar and there's definitely a culture of now having back to back to back to back -back meetings all the time which I'm very conscious of and I'm very aware of Um, but having one single daily call where we can all get the news we can all have that kind of Um, water cooler coffee conversation about what's going on what's hot what's going on in sock overnight what's what we're doing today etc let's Mm -hmm. catch up on the world events what's microsoft done and blah 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 um, and that's really helped us because you know we can we can drive conversation through there, and um, I, I honestly think that as a team we're working closer together than we ever have done before, which is weird because we haven't seen each other for about a year.
0: So yeah, yeah, I find that I work more from home than I actually do in the office. To be honest with you, because when you get to the office, it takes you what like thirty minutes to to really get into the swing of things. Breaking out. I'm glad you said that. I didn't know. Okay, was I was Mike. like,
2: "Is it just me?" <laughs> <yeah. laughs> is that better? Okay. Is that,
0: is that better? Um, no. 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 All right. Actually, is that is that better? I think. Yeah. Back.
2: Yeah. Do you might better. want to repeat that question?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I know working from home I actually work more hours than I did before the pandemic, because 30 minutes when you get to the office, it takes to get ready for the day. And then of course you have lunch in the middle and then by three o'clock, four o'clock, people are starting to wind down, getting ready for, you know, to go home. But I find that since I'm already there in a comfortable environment, it's like, I'm willing to take on more work. I feel like I owe more work to my clients um, because I'm getting to do it remotely or, or working from home. Um, mm. but do you see like the pandemic actually stopping at some point and everybody going back to the office or do you think this is something that's going to be hanging on for a while?
1: Yeah. Well, honestly, I think there's going to be a real mix. Um, you know, I've already seen some major organizations that I don't know, maybe I'm guessing, but in the background, we're maybe looking for an excuse not to have a really expensive office in the central London. Right. And it's a great excuse to get rid of it now and, and do something different and shake up the team. Um, we're not based in London, but um, I, I think a lot of businesses will be left thinking, shit, what, what are we going to do with all of this office space and all of this stuff we've invested in? We want to bring people back together. There is value in people connecting face to face, but maybe it's going to change some business models um, and, and maybe more businesses will be more flexible and hopefully... I mean, personally, I feel quite lucky because, as I say, my current employers always be in that kind of flexible anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't feel me personally will there'll be much change, but I think other organizations will will adapt uh, a bit more. So I don't think it's going to be a case where everyone is going to be working from home and entitled to work from home. But interestingly, what I do think there will be more of is more of a kind of certainly where I am more of a European jobs market. Whereas me in the UK on this little tiny island would be looking for jobs in my time zone. Well, now all of a sudden I might look broader. I might look onto the continent into Italy, Paris, wherever Mm -hmm. uh, and think, you know, an hour or two either side of my day doesn't really affect me too much. So all of a sudden, if I can work remotely, there's a there's a bigger jobs market out there.
0: Yeah, actually, um, all of the work that I've done so far has been still in Europe. So, I mean, I'm still working in your time zone and and still have clients over in the UK. And, and that hasn't changed at all. The U.S. is a little different. Uh, the U.S. is starting to act like they're going to reopen. I'm not really sure what's going on there. Um, our president, I'm not sure if he's been sleeping since he got inaugurated or, or if he's going to come out of the bedroom at some point. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. But it looks like the country's about to do something. Not sure what that's going to be. Uh, but again, the cybersecurity market here is so saturated and so just mm-hmm. overgrown and, and just, yeah, it, it's hard to find quality cybersecurity sock analysts, pen testers, ethical hackers here in the U.S. simply because of the fact that there are so many of them. Um, which brings me to another, uh, the next question is, Certifications. I know that you and I have talked certifications a couple of times and, and, but not so much on, on this podcast. This week, I've had two emails, two contacts on LinkedIn that blindly connected with me and sent me a message that was probably about 10 paragraphs long about all of the certifications that they can offer. And which one do I want? Um, I really wish there was a way that I could torch all of those profiles on LinkedIn and let them burn to the ground. Um, Because the whole whole certification process is just, I don't know if you saw um, today, the CompTIA is actually lowering their price to $30 for the course for a lifetime. So if they're only charging $30 for the course, what does that say about the actual certification? Is it really worth Mm. its weight? Yeah, I don't know. What is your take on... Strictly certification and coming into the industry, what do you think is more important? The actual ability to learn the actual, uh, I guess, character or personality, you know, they easy to get along with and work with. And do we value experience more than we value certification? Or does education play a higher role than certification? What's your take as a director of a team? What do you look for? No, it's a great great question. I
1: I feel like I've experienced both kind of sides of the fence here where I was working for somebody or working for an organization rather and working for an individual that was directing that team that, that I could not progress in. Even though I'd broken into the team, I'd made a name for myself, I could not progress because I didn't have particular certification that was only available if you were if you were like um in the in the police forces or Mm -hmm. in the military that kind of thing it was just impossible for me to go and get that kind of certification um versus uh, again i'll i'll embarrass him a little bit more when i had an interview with ste to break into the role within the financial sector i had no certifications i had no hands-on business experience but what i did have was home lab and a load of enthusiasm yeah. and a load of people i followed on twitter that i really really admired and i could i could regurgitate their information um and, and i think Steve ste kind of appreciated that i am someone that lives and breathes the industry um and i want to soak it up and i can learn so fast from people and and pick someone apart really quickly to understand what i think is interesting um and I'm so grateful to Steve because he gave me that shot. Right. So, um, and that was, I'll, I'll be honest to say that was a role, which, um, realistically should have been someone with a bit more experience than I had at the time. Um, but, but thankfully I was given that runway to come and make a difference, um, or come and show what difference I can make rather. Um, so for me, I've taken that forward. I've taken that experience forward for my team and say, I like, Uh, I I recruited somebody in the malware space to come and, you know, be my malware expert and reverse engineer malware and intrusions and exploits and all the rest of it, Mm -hmm. but they didn't have, you know, the SANS uh, qualification. They didn't have, um, you know, the relevant experience, what have you. I I feel like I can teach anyone how to reverse engineer malware if they've got the mindset of wanting to learn how to do it. Mm -hmm. But I definitely recruit for that mindset. Um, And I'll be honest and say quite openly that that, Mindset means that as a hiring manager, you can you can attract people at um, what's the what's the phrase to use? But less than market rates, put it that way, uh, because you're you're not you're not having to buy you're not you're not having to recruit somebody who's who's you're effectively paying for the certifications that they've already got. Right. You, you can maybe work with them for the first six months, bring them up to speed, get them the qualifications if that's what they really need or really want to kind of solidify their knowledge. Like when I joined the bank, as I say, I was, I didn't have the quals, didn't have the experience, et cetera, but that was a definite aim and a definite pathway for me that helped kind of secure my confidence in my own abilities by getting like a SANS certification that gave me a lot of confidence to say, do you know what? I do feel like I, I can, you know, talk about this subject and understand it and, you know, articulate it with my peers in the industry. It gave me some confidence, but it didn't get me the job. And it didn't get me my next job either. It just gave me that kind of credibility in the, in the marketplace. Yeah, um, sure. So I, I feel like that was important. The, the, the kind of credibility piece is something that grows and it's not something that you need to recruit for.
0: Yeah, the credibility, I think, is something that is built over time. You know, the more research and white papers you write and the more interviews you do or, or just publications you write for, that, that street cred or that, that, you know, that credibility comes along with time. Um, and the more you build your your circle, um, especially on like LinkedIn or other social, social platforms. Um, what I found really interesting is so far, I've not had anybody dispute this or want to debate it so far. Um, but this idea that we have a skills shortage, I think is totally false. I, I wish that they would stop saying that. Um, what I'm seeing is people are being hired. For the the job openings are for middle, like, medium or advanced, you know, cybersecurity people, right? Um, and what that's telling me is that when those people in the middle move up, they're not promoting from within. They're not bringing those SOC analysts into the second tier or even to you know middle management. They're leaving them right behind, you know, the monitors and i have a theory for that but they're not opening up the entry level and so they they create this this false uh, i guess gap that they keep talking about that doesn't exist and it's their excuse to only hire medium medium management or medium level um, text so my, my theory behind why socks do it and i we had this problem with the government was the fact that once you get people on that schedule, because the sock is 24 seven, they would much rather leave people in those rotations that are already in those rotations than happen to break somebody else in. Uh, but again, I, I think that's doing a detriment to, you know, the entire industry because working in a SOC, you've got to be flexible, right? You have to understand it's 24 seven functionality for most people. Uh, and when it goes 24-7, there may be times when you have to work overnight or, you know, there's times a the director, I get woken up at three o'clock in the morning and going to work from four o'clock in the morning until five o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, that's just part of the game. Um, so what is your thought, Colm, about the, the skills gap and, and the way the industry is actually hiring and, and looking at potential candidates?
1: Well, I, I couldn't agree more with you. Might I'll be honest with you. I think um, I, I don't think there's a skill shortage. Um, I, I think we're asking probably for the wrong skills. And I think when when I look back over the past maybe five six years of my career, where you know my roles and responsibilities have definitely advanced, that probably the the two most important skills that I have, well, I put to good use every day communication skills and relationship management skills Mm -hmm. so first off building relationships with key stakeholders in the business finding out what is going on in the business how the kind of security strategy aligns with what is going on uh, with the wider initiatives that are you know in the business and where the money is being spent Mm -hmm. and then also being able to communicate right so when the shit hits the fan and we've got an incident going on that i know who to communicate communicate to through those stakeholder relationships but i can communicate the right message to the right people um and that being able to translate right we got you know being able to translate this kind of microsoft exchange vulnerability ssrf with a arbitrary file right all that all that bullshit Mm -hmm. what does my cto want to know about And what does the CEO want to know about? And and the reality is that my CISO wants five bullet points. The CTO wants three bullet points. The CEO wants one bullet point. Tell me what the problem is in a tweet. And I think that that's probably the key, the most key skill that I've developed and learned. And I, I wish people would focus more on when we're recruiting for SOC analysts, for forensic analysts, for, you know, whatever these technical specialisms in security operations are, that the technical capability and the certifications and all the rest of it, they can be taught, Mm -hmm. but if someone's a great communicator, can build relationships and can, you know, and also develop people around them. Uh, There's a a phrase which I'm sure Steve's familiar with from our time together is that a rising tide floats all boats. You know, that if you start lifting yourself, you're going to lift the other people around you. And it's an organic process that people just feed off that kind of growth. Um, So, yeah that's that's really what what i recruit for personally but i think in the industry where we're just so focused on on you know very specific skills very specific experience when actually we should zoom out a little bit change our language and and widen the net a little bit as well
0: exactly and it it really frustrates me when i look at a job requirement and it's like they throw everything they can into that job requirement And you know that they're only paying like a fraction of what they should pay. And you're like, wait a minute, there's like a a laundry list of qualifications. You want me to know like 10 different languages and do this, do that. (laughs) But you're only paying like 20K. I mean, that's a problem. Um, Mm -hmm. Same thing with like the certifications, the certifications that they want. I I remember when I started my company in London, um, Cryptasek, and our first potential client had a phone call with them. It was a law office and they wanted some a lot of work done. And the guy asked me, he says, uh, are you Crest certified? I said, well, let me put it to you this way. You're my very first client over here in the UK. Where am I going to come up with 6,000 pounds to get a Crest certification if you're my first client? So you know, it, it goes back to you know, the, the, the wagon before the horse and, and whatnot, you know, a lot of those companies mm-hmm. want those certifications, but as someone fresh into the industry, you don't have that money to drop into a cert or a boot camp. Um and I think that's why it's paramount mm-hmm. that communities like this exist so that we can share knowledge so they can gain at least some sort of knowledge to walk in and feel comfortable taking, you know, at least a CEH or something like that. Um but yeah, there's just industry hurdles, I yeah, think, as I, a whole. I totally agree. Yeah. I think uh, th- there's a lot of change that needs to be made just within our industry. Um, so solar SolarWinds. Well, if you
2: guys could make one change, what would it be? If you could change one thing about the industry?
1: Wow, what a question that is. If I could change one thing about the industry. Um, honestly, I would be more transparent about... Um, Maybe not. Maybe this is not just this industry, but maybe maybe the ones I've experienced working in, um, I would be more transparent about salary and about expectations in the roles. I, yeah. I think, and I say, and the reason why I say that is because um, maybe because it's a topical conversation at the moment for me. But I think that um, there's so much money to be made in cybersecurity. It, it's enormous, but the ranges that we have so many people stock analysts and you kind of alluded to at the moment, right? We were were looking for super skilled people with a lot of experience, but pay them next to nothing. And there's 80% of the market there. And there's this other 20% that there is this kind of pathway that people can develop to really change their lives, but we're not transparent enough as to how that works just in business. Certainly in the UK, it's very cloak and dagger as to who gets paid, what, where, and how, and all the rest of it. Um, and I'd love to open that pathway up. And I see there's companies in the US, especially, uh, and maybe like these kind of fintechs or these new um, you know, technology businesses that, you know, literally will publish for the world to see a Google spreadsheet of everyone's salary and, and bonus and things like that. And I think it's really empowering for people to see what is possible, what they can do to get to the next level, and what it might look like for them. And, you know, if they just invested in this bit of time and energy here, then it could mean this for them over here as well. So that's probably something I'd focus on.
2: Yeah, yeah. that's really
0: good. Yeah, for sure. I think the one thing what that about I
2: would you, change. Mike, what
0: would you change? I think the one thing that I would change in the industry, um, it would probably be the way that we treat newcomers coming in. Um, I think that as far as a company that I work, I would work for would be a company that would assign a mentor your first day um, to kind of give you the, the ins and outs, not only the company, but the operations. There's so many times where I've seen people get hired and basically just dumped off at a desk and said, okay, shadow this person and you go live tomorrow. And that's just, you know, they're treated like employees and not like people. And I think that breeds insider threat and and other issues to to pop up. Um, And I'd like to see more. Imposter
1: syndrome as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely, (laughs) 100%. Yeah, and and I think another thing too that that kind of drags people down is when they do join a company and they, they go in for the interview and interview is technical. They have like five or six people firing questions at them like, you know, from, from all different angles and it's one person are expected to know all these different, you know, functions and operations, which I think is ridiculous. So what I did was I, from the time, I think it was 2006 on, um, all my interviews were conducted with a virtual box. So I would put together a virtual network and just sit them down and be like, go, you know, if it's a pen tester, if I'm hiring for pen testers, you know, give me a report, brief me at the end of, at the end of your two hours, and we'll go from there. Um, if it's a sock, I'd give them logs and, and I'd give them packet captures and I'd say, okay, what are we looking at? Mm. I'd give them screenshots sh- screenshots from the platform and be like, here's the alerts. You know, wh- what do we do here? Um, because it's not, and I always tell them, it's not a a, a right or wrong answer. It's more of how you're going to approach a problem, what's your what's your method of thinking, and and the way you you know hypothesize your theory. You know, I, that's that's what I want to see. I don't care about, you know, you were able to pass a CEH and and all that other nonsense because it's really not that heart shattering that someone can pass a test. Mm. Um, And another thing too is when someone puts on a job requirement, you have to have five, five years experience or a bachelor's in computer science. If I have a bachelor's in computer science, I'm not going to go for a job that's going to ask me for five years experience. I'm going to demand more money. Um, Mm. But it just little things with the industry that, that needs to be fixed and mm. reviewed. And I think that another initiative, too, is is women in cybersecurity. You know, everybody tells that they do their part. Everybody says, oh, you know, I'm an advocate for women in cybersecurity. But then when you ask them, how many women have you hired in the past six months, you'd be surprised the answers that come through. Mm. Uh,
1: so i was i was um i listened to an interesting panel a little while ago um about how to maybe encourage is probably the wrong word to use but how how can we kind of open the doors more to women in infosec uh, as a career choice i I think once women are in infosec like they they have certainly from my experience unbelievably successful careers and some of the, the most technical people i know are female that they just blow my mind um the the level of capability um that some people have not just not because they're female but just just so happens to be that they're exceptional at what they do um but i think uh the the discussion was around the language and the phraseology that is used in job descriptions and a lot, of the, um, a lot of the words that we kind of use within cybersecurity are very masculine words. We talk about penetration testing. It couldn't be any more masculine word than penetration, yeah. right? Um, stuff like that. And like, you know, um, threats and things, it all sounds really masculine. Um, when, when really we could change that language. But then the flip side to that is that there you know, are some people that would argue, well, why soften language for the sake of the opposite sex? Right. Because because then are you are you kind of like playing to the fact that you know women may not understand this kind of language and stuff and then you got you got a real head fuck then because you're like well, <laughs> I, I, you know we I think that, I think there's a difference we can make there with the language we use but we don't have to go to to the extreme of you know dumbing stuff down but I do think we can soften stuff and make it more you know uh, um, approachable is probably the word um, when people see all of these technical words. It's a little bit scary.
2: Yeah, like you, got, you guys have no idea how embarrassed I get when I tell my friends, you know, like what I do, because <laughs> I'm on I'm on the offensive side of security. So we do penetration testing like all day, you know. So um, it's it's so embarrassing because I tell my friends about it. And of course, you know, like my girlfriends, you know, they, they're not as technical and, they, you know, their mind goes the other direction. And, you know, it's just <laughs> it's like so embarrassing I'm like guys you don't want to know how many times I see penetration tests a day <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: like it's, yeah, it's 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 like a keyword that we have to use for our SDO so I'm like I, I use penetration testing a lot <laughs> um but it sounds like so bad coming from a female so yeah strange, I, if I, if yeah. I could change one thing I would love to change like another term for penetration testing, like call it hacking, you know?
1: Yeah, red teaming or- Red, red teaming, teaming. Yeah. You know, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, and you
1: look at like, uh, it's fine. I mean, obviously given the recent situation with Microsoft and um, the the research that Orange Sy and his team at DevCorp were doing, if you look at the people that work at Devcore. The red team is there, predominantly female. These, oh, yeah. they're, they're fucking exceptional. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah.
0: And I, I talked about that on, I think it was the last podcast, about how you have to have that yin and the yang, right? So I think that as men, we think a different way um, when it comes to cybersecurity and when it comes to uh, threats coming at us at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I think females look at it a different way. But in order to have a really effective team, you have to have a balance of both. It can't be one sided. It can't be a bunch of guys ready to pull the trigger when, you know, maybe we need to take it, you know, take a step back and, and look at the problem and address it a different way. Um, I know, especially in the SOC, when when the IDSs back in the day started looking like slot machines, people started freaking out. But we had a female on staff and she's like, you know, Hey, just let's take a step back, let it spin. It's, it's going to spin. And we'll figure out where we're going from here, but she was that voice of reason. Like, you know, hey, you know, I, I know the testosterone's getting out of hand, so just back away from the monitor and and let's take a look at this as a team. And I watched that that whole scenario play out, and I thought, you know, there's there's a real value in having a really mixed team. Um, I thought before mm-hmm. having a sock, it was most important to have guys that i knew from the military and and functionality that that they had in the military would equate to roles on the SOC team and that's how we'd run our ship was basically like a a military unit but that doesn't always work that way um you know military units make bad decisions based on short reaction times um so you know you have to have that that logic and and that softer side the and I, I don't mean software side in a bad way. I mean software side as in they don't look at the hard facts; they look at the whole picture. And a lot of pentesters, a lot of uh, SOC analysts don't have that capability, um, so I really value that. So, looking at solar winds over the past I don't know, two months or so, I know we talked about solar winds on on your podcast, and then I did one with uh, on TV. Um, so where do you think this is going? I mean, we've talked about this and theorized on it, but any change?
1: Well, I I don't think it's a new risk, put it that way. I I think, you know, these attacks have been going on under the radar for years and they will do for years. Um, uh, what I think has probably changed or certainly what I saw in my immediate landscape change was that. The CTOs of the world, all of a sudden, they got it. They got the what third-party risk is all about, right? And and right. it wasn't some kind of uh, weird and wonderful thing that may happen to like you know not here and Murck and WannaCry and all the rest of it. It could genuinely happen in any organization around the world, and and right. most probably it would have been ours. So I, I think that really kind of put third-party risk on the map. No. Uh, and like vendor security and things like that, and I think you know the reality is it's so hard for a business to assess the security of another business. So if I want to buy something from Vendor A over here, well, I can go with, to them with my you know checklist of you know do you have this control that control PCI certs and ISO nine twenty seven thousand blah whatever, right? But that's that's that that's not going to tell you you know has your environment been backdoored am i going to pull an update that's going to compromise my entire network um unless you reverse engineer every single dll yourself which is just impossible so the risk is real and i think really what what it kind of put on the map going forward is that there's more to what we we have to consider with security maturity it's not all about just you know a bit of fishing training and some perimeter controls all of a sudden it's the people and the technology that's on the inside of a business that are our threats, um, as well as all of the other stuff on the outside as well. And what can we do to really, you know, not necessarily prevent because it's almost impossible, but what can we do to mitigate and minimize and that's really kind of refocused some of the strategy um, going forward. Um, so hopefully what will change is there'll be a little bit more investment in that area um, and a bit more play for people to go and solve those problems uh, when previously it's kind of a hard risk to articulate, but now there's something tangible that people can refer to and say, listen, this, this is very real. This can and will and has happened.
0: Yeah. And they, they really should open up and, and publicize more, the job role of supply chain auditor um i know at the bank we had supply chain auditing that went on 24 7 mm. and I, I, since solar winds i've always been curious as to if you know the financial institution that we all worked at if it was affected by solar winds i'm just kind of curious you know i'd be amazed if it wasn't <laughs> right <laughs> um so yeah like looking at that um you know i, I think that we've only seen it tip of the iceberg of the effects of solar winds i think that it's going to be years we're going to get new pieces of the equation coming in Mm.
1: Um, i mean mean, just the fact that it appears that there were so many mm. disparate threat actors involved here different adversaries with different motivations different capabilities this is just one this is just one example right solar winds is just one piece of software that we just happen to know about because there was a bit of noise made at FireEye.
0: Yeah. And it, and it was so, the attack was so not complex, mm-hmm. which is scary. The attack was so simple. And the fact that it went down and so many companies were affected by it uh, is really sad because we're, we're also talking about this occurring in a time frame of AI and machine learning being buzzwords, you know, those buzzwords didn't seem to help a whole lot during solar winds Yeah,
1: zero trust.
0: <laughs> right.
1: There's the next one, right? Exactly. I, what was interesting was like, I said, I can't, I forget the exact figures, but it was like solar winds have got 300,000 customers and only 18,000 were impacted. So, so there's a big chunk there that don't patch. <laughs>
0: right. Well, I, I probably know most of those companies too. Um...
1: But it's hard, But I, I guess that's the reality of infosec. It's hard, right? Not not everyone can patch automatically and up to date and all the rest of it. And and to be honest, does it? Does that give? the kind of threat model of we're going to stay at N minus two or N minus one. We don't want the yeah. latest patch because what if, what if it's the one that's been burnt?
0: So- well, even so, like the DoD, when before we would install a patch across the, the network for the Department of Defense, that patch had to go through rigorous testing in our labs. Like it wasn't just something we would throw on devices. And that's what I don't understand with SolarWinds. It's like maybe people's patching process needs to be reviewed let's take a look at the patch and patch validity and, and test the patch in a lab environment before we go accepting it into, in in most cases, uh, a client network, right? So mm. solar winds on a lot of oil and gas, uh, maintained, uh, looked at uptime, looked at latency of customers equipment for service providers and that's critical infrastructure. Mm. And I can tell you from my experience in oil and gas that so basically any service provider, if you ask them if they patch hundred percent of their devices, the answer is going to be no. Um, Take AT&T, for example, for them to patch every device they have on patch Tuesday for, for any and all vulnerabilities, it would take the network down. Mm. So they have, they have to put, they put those into a scheduling, they do it through a maintenance window and sometimes acceptable risk comes into play. Uh, People who, don't know, um, patching and our, our new to industry. Um, basically the patcher put out, you know, critical, you know, of course you should always like take a look at that. And, and there's a time frame. usually for, for most people is like less than 30 days. Um, but then you have a thing called acceptable risk and that plays a part with pen testing as well as patching, as well as anything security related in most enterprise networks. And what that is, is basically a CTO or a CISO coming back after they have a change change review board and saying, look, um, the patch or the change that's been submitted is just not feasible based on technology and we deemed it an acceptable risk. And that basically says they're willing to take the responsibility of anything that might happen as opposed to installing that patch. Um, but- yeah,
1: I think it would be it would be amazing to be in a position where, um, who would it be? Maybe like the DHS or CISA or something in the US, and then like the national, the NCSC here in the UK. Mm-hmm. If 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 you're running a piece of software that has root access around your network, effectively that mm-hmm. is installed in critical national infrastructure organizations, that they verify the patches before you get them. Yeah, because ultimately they're they're the ones that are trying to protect critical national infrastructure. That I mean. That's so far away, but that would be amazing.
0: Well, we, we have a group here like that. Um, it's they don't actually test test pack, um, like updates or, or patches, but it's the FBI InfraGuard, and so they have leaders from the different industries that come in, like financial, critical infrastructure, stuff like that. They come into these meetings with the FBI and Secret Service, and they talk about potential threats that the U.S. is facing as far as cyber stuff goes. Um, but again, like. Uh, you know, not to slam the FBI for, for stuff they've done, but um, if they see a backdoor in your network, they're more, they're more probable of accessing that backdoor and just monitoring (laughs) your company rather than telling you there's a problem. (laughs) Um, And that goes back to your thought on transparency. Like I, I think as, as a civilization, we've gone so far away from transparency and what's funny is a fight for privacy. And I talked about this not too long ago is that some people really freak out about privacy, but then go home and get on some of the most vulnerable apps. So Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, where do you win? But the FBI and the government is definitely not here to help anybody in the U.S. as far as, like, cybersecurity goes. And I'm not really sure exactly what the InfraGard does. Uh, I've been to a couple of their meetings, and it was just a guy getting up talking about his company and what they can provide. Um, It's more like a vendor meeting. It wasn't anything really specific. Mm -hmm.
1: So, so I mean, the, the reality is the risk is in the hands of the people that buy the software, and, and it's like, yeah. well, that's not—it's not a great threat model to have, right? You've got to. Yeah. So, as everyone always says, right, you've got to assume breach.
0: So, yeah. it's a responsibility yeah. thing too, accountability mm-hmm. and responsibility, right? So, look at gaming networks and how often kids get approached on gaming networks and, and harassed or, or approached or groomed. At what point does the gaming industry take a little bit more responsibility and say, "Hey, look, we got to find a better way to authenticate these people"? Um, same thing with the U.S. You know, and the government. At what point do they say, "Okay, this is our critical infrastructure. We lose this shit, we're gone"? Um, mm-hmm. At what point do they step up and, and force people to be more accountable and, and have a, a better process in place? So it's just one of those double edged swords, you know, it's and it's going to cost slow. money and. Tradition, traditionally, cybersecurity is zero ROI, um, no return on investment. And from the time that I started in security, the biggest thing I've always heard is we have no budget for that. And it's like, well, you know, you can cut security out of your budget right now, but when we get breached.
2: Do they have a budget for a breach? <laughs> yeah, no,
0: it'll dictate your budget. <laughs> so, yeah. um, So, as a leader of a SOC, Colin, what Mm -hmm. keeps you up at night right now? Currently, what is on your mind that keeps you up that you most worry about? I think um,
1: uh, asset management, I think is always key, right? Mm -hmm. So we can protect what we know Mm -hmm. about in the organization. uh, But the stuff that, you know, we're we're in a very, I mean, certainly my organization is a hybrid of, you know, cloud and on-premise. And so we know an awful lot about what's on-premise. We know, a lot about what's in the cloud but i think the reality is we don't know everything there's teams of people in these large enterprises that do stuff that is they're not they're not trying to uh, you know evade controls and all the rest of it they, it just happens in business that you don't necessarily see everything um you know and certainly developer environments and things like that um so i, I worry I, I worry that we you know we, we feel like we go to sleep at night and think yeah do you know what all the controls are switched on everything is green Happy days. Um, but then you know, you see something on the internet and you think, shit, where did that come from? Um, you know, I didn't know about that server or I didn't know about I never I never knew that I ran Winds or Exchange on premise or whatever <laughs> until today. Um so I, I guess that's a constant kind of uh, buzz in my brain to make sure that we're always looking and we're we never we're never trusting the information in its entirety and we're always looking to um to expand on what we know already.
0: So, how how do you solve that as a as a as a SOC director? How do you solve that that asset management missing piece of the puzzle equation? Because I, I know that's pretty prevalent with every group that has any kind of engineers or developers.
1: Yeah, totally. I, I think um, we, I've definitely not solved the problem, but one way that I attack it uh, is, I guess, going back to what those kind of two key skills i said earlier about is is stakeholder management and communication skills so having good relationships with people who run and direct those environments means that i regularly talk to them i regularly and i I can pick up on stuff in conversation Mm -hmm. like oh hang on you mentioned this domain or you mentioned this new ad forest or you mentioned this whatever that i can then go off and start asking some more questions about but yeah. if if I'm in a sock in a closed environment, literally most socks are isolated, you know, environments from the rest of the business, um, then that doesn't work. And so I, I think one of the the key skills I learned from my current CISO really is to open the doors, to mm-hmm. go and speak to people, have these regular touch points with people I don't really have anything to do with on a day to day basis around the business. Like, I don't know marketing or procurement or whatever. Yeah, but. You know, you just, you just pick up on these nuggets of information. And it's not, you know, it's not a robust way of dealing with the problem. But I think that's one of the better ways, at least if you find something. Yeah. If you smell something and you want to just find out mm-hmm. more, you've got those contact points where you can go and
0: explore it. Yeah. The, um, one of the one of the things I did at, at Oil & Gas was like Fridays, I go buy like a couple dozen donuts, put it in a break room. But every day <laughs> when I come into work, we had a sock that was, you know, carded so that only, you know, the sock could get in and knock operators and it was closed off to the rest of the company. But I'd show up early and just make my rounds through, through the company on the floor and talk with the different department heads and, and people I knew within different groups, just to, first of all, to be nice. But second of all, trying to get kind of a tone as to what was going on within those groups because everything they do affects mm-hmm. what we did in security, whether it be accounts payable um, is not happy with management Um you have a potential insider risk over there, you know, just, so just being friends with these people and and get to know them personally and understanding their problems within their own little groups within a company actually makes security so much easier Mm -hmm. because then not only do they not fear security, but they look at you as somebody they can talk to. And as soon as there's a problem, first thing they come do is knock on that glass, that, that fishbowl, come help, come help. And I had no problem doing it because, you know, the more that I interacted with those groups, the more I found out about breaches, the more I found about mm. uh, potential like suspicious files or whatever, but and, usually, and I, I've, go
1: ahead. Sorry, go. I was gonna say, I find as well that, um, you know, when I, when I speak to these areas of the business, they absolutely love security, mm-hmm. like it's cops and robbers stuff, right? It's it's yeah. stuff out of a movie. You start talking about solar winds hack and like Russians invaded attacking environments and stuff like that. It, it's literally like Ocean's Eleven, mm. and pe- people love it. And you know, presented in the right way, you you can really build some meaningful relationships by sure. by kind of presenting this data. And then people naturally then come to you and say, "Oh, hey, that was amazing. Let me tell you about this shit that we've got going on in in our part of the business." You know, you find out so much more. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's just just that that relationship with the rest of the business units I find really interesting because you really can't secure an environment unless you know exactly all the ins and outs of all the group's operations. Um, especially key operations like passing money and and merging mm. acquisition, stuff like that. Um,
2: Colin, what are what are some like key metrics that you and your team kind of measure um, that that you kind of have to report up to, to the C suite?
1: Yeah, good question. Um I guess that a lot of, uh, I see a lot of metrics around and and our, our systems and tools are capable of generating so many different kinds of metrics. And a lot of people look at like mean time to respond, mean time to recover and contain and things like that. Um, and if I'm honest, I don't really focus that much on that kind of level of detail. Personally, I'm interested in um, the trends as to what type of incident we're seeing. Mm. Um, and, and that drives a lot of different questions. And certain a lot of a big change that we've seen over the past, past kind of 12, 18 months or so has been a big shift in the kind of events we're seeing around data privacy. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we get attack, we get malware attacks, we get DDoSs, we get vulnerability exploits, we get all, all that kind of good stuff. Um, but really, the, the, the key for us has been to, we, we've certainly seen an uptick in the amount of data privacy events that have happened, not necessarily serious incidents or anything like that, but just occurrences. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can map that and we can start like digging into the detail around you know where's that coming from Are certain teams being you know lax with certain controls or or whatever it may be um and so I, I find a lot of value in in kind of looking at that kind of trend data what the the way we kind of structure things in my organization is we have this um the kind of filter we go through we have this daily conversation as i kind of mentioned earlier and we literally talk about right talking about all the open tickets what's going on and who's doing what etc and then that maps out to like weekly where i give a summary to my cso and still know this terminology because we coined it together um but i have a i have um, an email i send to my uh, my cso every thursday and it's called five by five and what it means is there's five bullet points that are going to take him no more than five, five minutes, minutes to read. Exactly. So, and I think that's probably a military thing, right? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I so... think it is.
2: I worked at a, a company and the president was military and it was, it was like, what's your top three goals for the month, the week and the day. Right. I love um, it.
1: Yeah. I love it.
2: Yeah. So it, I, it's, it's really rigid, but then it, it's also nice to have like a small element of that in your daily routine, you know?
1: Yeah, definitely, and it makes me like I have to write them like a tweet, right? I don't right. I can't, You've got to be
2: precise and strategic with the words you choose.
1: Exactly, I've got I've got a limited number of characters here that I can I can use. He, you know, he's reading it on his phone. He wants he doesn't want to scroll. It needs to be short, sharp, but he needs all the detail. Like what's going on in the world of security operations that he needs to worry about or need to know about, because he's going to flip that up to his you know the CTO or the CEO et cetera. and he's going to chop it down as well and whatever. Um, and then broader than that, we have like a, a monthly security committee where we have other stakeholders from the round of business, from finance, from legal, from um, you know, privacy, etc., all on this call together. And we talk about those metrics, we talk about the key incidents, we talk about key threat intelligence. And certainly for my business, we are threat intelligence driven, um, cool. where you know, we really put and put intelligence and we value intelligence at the forefront of our Mm -hmm. threat model what are the bad guys up to strategic intel tactical intel day-to-day stuff as well um is
2: there any of that that you can share i'm so curious like what what all do you know about you know your adversaries and like are there like different organized groups um what is that threat landscape like
1: broad <laughs>
0: a circus um, yeah.
2: i feel like that must be so intimidating for someone that's defending the castle right you've got mm-hmm. all these enemies attacking you and you, you don't you might not know where they're all coming from
0: you kind of have to know who they are like and in, in what industries or, or what verticals they they target so there's no known, known actors but those actors kind of branch off into things they potentially target FI is a really difficult one. I know at the bank, we had a difficult time with our threat management team as far as looking at Intel. Colin, you probably remember that as well. Um, the formation of the threat Intel team and, and the travesty that ensued afterwards. Um, but yeah, like I'd be interested to, to hear like, you know, as a yeah, like what, what service detecting. provider. Yeah, what, what's the most unique, the most unique uh, incident you had so far as a SOC director?
1: Uh, I might have to think about that one most unique but I can certainly talk about the kinds of stuff we're interested in from a threat intelligence provider so we have to give some perspective maybe um, we have a threat intelligence specialist who works for us I mean we're compared to the bank right our our economies of scale are totally different yeah totally Um, but you know the, the bank was Protecting 250,000 employees, we're two and a half thousand employees. Yeah. So we have a, a cyber threat intel specialist, and their role is really so. They, so many hats that they wear with the different kinds of intelligence. Like for example, we chair some industry intelligence sharing groups and communities, uh, which are uh, affiliated with the UK government as well, because we're a critical national infrastructure. So that's, that's a big soak of time for someone to go and deal with and to manage and to chair and stuff. And then there's the technical element as well, right? You've got, I don't know, e or TrickBot and all the rest of it, all that kind of malware. You want to know what these bad guys are up to and how their infrastructure is working. And, you know, you've also got to know in your brain what controls that we've got around the business that can mitigate that kind of stuff. And so a lot of their role is to work with some of the technical specialists that we have Um, you know malware specialist or forensic specialist or whomever who can help assess you know hey i've got this piece of intel this tactical change that these bad guys have released a new module for this bit of malware whatever does our control that we have protect us against it and if not how much of an issue is it if not and what can it do and all the rest of it so that kind of intel goes on all the time but then you've got that extra layer above it where you know, that you've got the nation state stuff, the Iranians, the Chinese, the Russians, et cetera, and trying just to keep up with their their capabilities from the snippets that you find in the news. Right, it's a lot. It's just crazy, it's crazy. Uh, And so of course we use a threat intelligence provider as well. So um, there's a number of them on the market obviously, uh, but we are with one of the uh, top right in the quadrant, if you like. That's right. Um, uh we do have CrowdStrike um we we I would say we have a multi-faceted approach to threat intelligence it's probably the best way to describe it without should, describing who yeah. we
0: use and what we use you should have multiple feeds for sure anybody should have multiple feeds
1: yeah definitely um and, and I, I I'm very proud to say that we have CrowdStrike as our EDR technology nice. right it's wor- world leading not FireEye <laughs> <laughs> not FireEye we don't have any FireEye actually but not that I wouldn't um But threat intelligence is really important because we, as a business, we're not only just protecting our corporation, our organization, we've got 5 million customers that we're really interested in protecting as well. And we host their email. So when you sign up for broadband with us, you get an email account, which, you know, reality is no one really uses, but we, we have to protect it anyway. Um, And so it's really important to us that that environment is protected and um, uh, customers who connect to our network are not compromised with malware, all that kind of stuff. So we do threat intelligence based on our customers. And of course customers get fished, and they get scam phone calls and they get all the rest of it. So we, again, there's a whole body of work that we do around that as well. So it, it circus is the right word to use, Mike. I think yeah. you used do that. <laughs>
0: it's
1: so. all Circus.
0: Yeah. yeah. So I, I have a tough question for you and I haven't Pretty had good. anybody from ISP on the podcast yet. So this will be the first. Um, so I have, I had Comcast here in the States. So I'm sure you know who Comcast is Turner broadcasting horrible ISP. Um, <laughs> So I was working from home I was running some scans and I, I pulled up a packet uh, capture and realized that they were blocking all the ports except for 53 and 80. Um, just so I could get DNS and like get out to the web. Um, which really frustrated me because I was trying to do a pen test. And of course I had to hit, you know, 65,000 ports and they were only giving me two. Um, so I called and I had to go through all these lines of support that didn't give me an American phone number Um Complain, complain, complain. Finally got to the engineers, and engineer said, "Oh, well, we have you on a filter connection. Let me switch you over to another switch port, and you'll be good to go." Boom! Automatically I had full range of of all the ports. Which brings me to a question: In Europe, it may be different, but in the U- in the US, if I call and I say, "Hey, look, um, my system at home is being attacked," the carte blanche I guess uh, response from ISPs here is we're not responsible for your security we're responsible for your connection and the I guess the consistency of that connection and speed Uh, so they basically backed out of any kind of you know we provide security for our customers now how is that different from your service provider Do do you guys actually like get involved with stuff like that like you know potential cases with with clients that you know may or may not be attacked or you know how do you guys handle calls like that when someone says hey look i, I don't think i'm being protected by isp name x whatever
1: um it, it's a it's a great question and there's definitely been a shift in the landscape here in the UK over the past couple of years in how ISPs view their accountability. I think with customers, I I think the old, older mindset really was that, right? We provide a connection and that's it. We walk away. Um, and unfortunately that doesn't really help your reputation as a business. If bad things happen to customers that even aren't your fault as a business, right? Just, just being connected to the internet, Using a certain provider and you visit a phishing yes. website or whatever, then someone's going to say, "Oh, Christ! Well, I was on TalkTalk Talk and this happened and blah blah blah, whatever." And there's there's definitely a, a, a kind of reputational risk there that you want to help customers because we recognise that there is a UK or or certainly a global problem with um, threats of that nature. Mm-hmm. So we certainly, as, as a business, focus a lot on customer security. And in fact, we've got a dedicated customer security lead head of, uh, who just looks at like all of the products that we can, um, give to our customers, not necessarily paid products or commercial, um, but just products and services that customers can use to protect themselves whilst they're on our network. Um, and certainly a lot of that is around DNS. So, you know, how can we, how can we, um, make sure that we're blocking known malicious infrastructure? without impacting genuine services because as we all know right we can have a phishing page on google docs we're not going to block google (laughs) Um, so how how can we make sure that we block the stuff that we know about that's not going to impact the wider customer base Uh, how can we also prevent criminal activity within our network so you know you've got the the hosting and sharing of child sexual abuse material on the internet And if there's, how can we identify that and eradicate it from our internet service provider? And so we partner with um, government-sponsored agencies to take feeds of information again to to protect our customers against that side of things as well. Mm -hmm. But I I think, and I think largely now in the UK that like that kind of service exists within the operator space, but then there's a layer above that, that we, we really want to see more proactivity around stopping scam phone calls and stopping (laughs) phishing um (laughs) you know the the indian call center that rings you pretended to be microsoft just happens all the time and unfortunately you know if that's on a a phone number or a internet connection that is associated to your network and somebody loses their life savings it's a horror story um that we are so helpless to 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 fight against um and so actually what we're uh, kind of spearheading in our organization is we're working closely with a, uh, well, an industry body, which is pulling together the banks and the telcos together. So oh, nice. we're, we're now sharing data between each other because I think the banks are great at sharing data between banks and ISPs are great at sharing data between themselves. And we're now starting to do that together um and we're, we're getting some great intelligence um and, and we're also being able to react to that intelligence really quickly as well so yes. in fact only only in the past week or so we've built some uh, automated feeds where we can take uh, these this feed of information and we can um, make sure that we're not going to kind of block stuff for customers that's going to have an impact for genuine services and we can automate the blocking before we have to wait for a takedown or whatever so
0: yeah and, that, and that's really interesting the uh when i worked for verizon we were we had the same problem, but I think the problem here in the states, as far as intel sharing, is probably a hundred times worse than than Europe or the UK. Um, nobody trusts anybody here. Uh, we don't even trust our own government. We 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 send people to climb walls and, and smash windows at the Capitol, when there's inauguration. I mean, <laughs> it, it, we we just don't trust anybody. So getting people to trust somebody to to pass along information or intelligence. Um, during 9-11, uh, that was like the biggest intelligence failure in the history of the U.S. And when they did the root cause analysis uh, kind of exercise on it, they realized that the main intelligence agencies across the U.S. did not communicate at all. Um, same thing with the FBI. When I dealt with uh, a couple of compromises, the fact that if it wasn't over a certain amount of money, then the FBI wouldn't touch it. But if it was over a certain amount of money, then the Secret Service had to take it. And they didn't communicate with each other. Mm. Um, but that's just the, the, the culture here. You know, it's hide and, and be hidden um, until recognized in the U.S., which I think is, is really bad. But there's a lot of things in the, in the U.K. that are very far advanced as opposed to what it's like in the U.S. Like the cyber, cyber program for the kids. Amazing. The Matrix Challenge. Amazing. Um here, show me one thing that that the government's done to help kids get into cybersecurity. They talk about surprised by that. Yeah, and they talk about the future and and you know, let's, you know, start Space Force and Spa War, all that good stuff. But the initiative for the kids is is just it's just not there. And I don't know if that's because of lack of interest or the lack of technological technological know how on the federal level so 2006 in a documentary i raised a lot of hell about um, cyber law um, which uk seems to have again under control but the us doesn't do such a great job at Um, so the breaches that you're seeing at the isp you work for um, let's say they they come back to the us the way that we uh, indict the way we charge unless you're uh, a red state you're not gonna be on the top top five most wanted list of the FBI. It's going to be Russia and China. Um, So really, how is that helping the threat scape of of the internet? Mm. It's really not. Uh, We need to catch kids at a young age and catch actors, you know, in the process. And and I just don't think we do enough to, as an industry, to do that. However, like with Trace Labs, we've had some people from Trace Labs on, I think, which is really cool. Steve, I know, is involved in that as well. Um, And there's a lot of really cool initiatives to use cyber to solve real world real world problems for kids missing people crime all the above and uh i don't know colin if, if if you've ever been to or if you've been involved with the um hack the police it's a, a coding competition where you create an app in the uk and the police look at it and it's, you create an app to make their jobs easier with investigation or cyber crime we don't have that here it's one of those things that's completely escaped us. So in the short, like I really miss the UK and I, I miss the initiatives because you guys are on the forefront of really everything cutting edge. I get back to the States and it's like, it's the same way I left it. Nothing's changed. And it's been three years and, and we're still at the same, you know, standby, you know, we, we got all frustrated when Huawei, was uh, backdooring mm. switches and routers and selling to the government. And then when I get back, uh, we have problems with solar winds. It's like, when are we going to learn that, you know, you got to do something and, and make an effort to protect, you know, your people and, and your connections. Um, so that's interesting that, that you guys are taking a different approach to, to try to help uh, clients in the network. Um, the amount of spam and, and the amount of phishing and, and stuff like that that's gone up since the pandemic is just, unreal. And, uh, the call centers, the Indian call centers, um, one of the, the more infamous ones here is the, let us renew your car warranty phone call. Um, I get at least three or four of those a day and I have epilepsy, don't no drive. So yeah, I have some fun with those. Um, Mike,
2: I think you're gonna have to repeat that one. I, I, I missed it.
0: Yeah. Talking about ISPs, we're on nomad ISP and we're on top of a mountain. So I use LTE connections all we can get. So you have to bear with me here. Hopefully <laughs> in the next months we'll have a solid connection. Anyways, um, I don't have any more questions for Colin. Trammy, do you have questions before I open it up to the people that are watching?
3: Trami? Um yeah,
2: so so you, you said that you fell in love with malware. Um, I'd love to know more about that moment that someone falls in love with malware. <laughs> what's what's that like?
1: <laughs> it's, a, it's a great question. Um, I'll, I'll try not to take all night. Was it the same
2: it. way you fell in love with your partner? You know?
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs> or is
2: that a different kind of love? <laughs>
1: de- de- definitely different. Um, yeah, I, I think, um, well, I have a family full of... Um, of, of police officers um my i'm very proud of my dad who was an he's a retired police officer here in the uk um he so i grew up as a child with stories of you know crime and drugs and murders and things like that i was just wow. fascinated by, by wow. criminals um and at what area- age
2: what at what age did you hear your first murder story I'm so oh, curious.
1: Do you know? I I have I have a vivid re- recollection of going to our local kind of paper shop, newspaper shop, what have you. Um, and my dad had a like a, a subscription to a magazine, like some kind of crime magazine. And I was probably maybe six, seven years old, something like that. And he always used to tell me, you can tell by the eyes, you can tell by someone's <laughs> eyes. <laughs> and I used to be so scared of reading this magazine. It was wow. crazy. Um, yeah, anyway, it was, it was hilarious. But he was, um, he was a very hard copper, hard policeman, um, and uh, worked in an area of the UK, which is notorious for drug crime, gangs, all the rest of it.
0: What part is that?
1: In, in Liverpool. Oh so um so that so which is not to the I, I live very near near to Liverpool um and so yeah you know he was he he worked in a very rough part of the uh, of the business um so I, and my sister and her family and all the rest of it they're now currently serving police officers I'm very proud of their involvement and I never took that path but I've always been fascinated with the criminal mind um, and, the, and just, just kind of being close to that criminal investigation world. And and that's what I did pre, when I worked at the bank, pre malware and all the rest of it, I, I worked investigating identity fraudsters and, um, and things like that. Um, and so I, I had this, this itch in my brain, you know, I used to write a bit of software, a bit of code and then this, that, and the other to try and track these people and find out, you know, what, who their networks were and all the rest of it. Uh, I had some great fun and some great success doing that um, in, the, in the mobile phone space. But when I joined the bank, I remember having an introduction uh, from you know the team of people and I, I met this guy called Siva and he was like, yeah, my name is Siva. I reverse engineer malware. And I was like, you're the fucking coolest guy on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought I wanted, I, I want to be able to say that. Um, yeah. You know? Uh, and so I just, I literally sat opposite him for about a year and I just listened to everything he said. I was like writing down all of the books he reads. I was, I was literally just stalking him. Um, and as soon as I did that, and I, and of course, at the time I was running and managing security incidents and I was seeing these, these malware attacks and things like that. And, and so I, I was just bombarded with malware in that environment. Um, and and I just, it just, it just really st- struck every chord for me. Um, you know, I could, I could flex my coding technical skills to, you know, get underneath the hood of all of this obfuscation and, uh, and, um, all of these attacks that were designed to, to make me make it difficult for me to analyze that really turned me on. I, I just, that just made me want to just peel it back more. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, in being able to look at attribution and threat intelligence and to get closer to the bad guys and to see what they're all about, what their intentions are. Well, again, that's just that criminal investigation, investigative itch. So, yeah. So, yeah, that, that's when I fell in love was, you know, nice. yeah.
2: <laughs> I feel like I can kind of relate because it was like watching these uh, dark mysteries, uh, documentaries and and crime uh, yeah. series is kind of what got me interested and. In, into cybersecurity and then when I got into cybersecurity it's like oh now I, I have people that I can actually ask and like <laughs> hey here's what I saw in the show in the movies like is this true um so yeah that's that's awesome I love seeing that moment that you find something that kind of sparks and lights up your interest
0: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah so and then it, it reminds me of uh, kind of like the Unabomber right so when you look at like the letters the Unabomber would leave like you know deciphering the the code within the letters of the journal so when you're reversing malware you're kind of getting that much closer to the actual perpetrator and mm-hmm. you actually feel like you have a relationship with this person reading all their little signatures i think it's really cool i've yeah. always i've always admired people who did uh, like reverse engineering of malware i think the only piece that i that i really got into was uh, impact back in the day and that was the first piece of malware that, that I sandboxed and like reverse. But there's a certain, uh, like you said, there's there's a certain drive to get into the brains of the people who are writing the malware, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I love malware it tries to prevent your analysis. I just yeah. love it. Yeah. Uh, and when, when I was at the bank, there was a particular piece of, a particular kind of variant strain of malware, whatever you want to call it, mm. um, called Banload. Um, mm. And it's a Portuguese banking trojan. Uh, and so it would only target people in like brazil or latin america um and it was written in like delphi uh, or java or whatever um it was it was just it was like it was so hard to analyze and it was so aware of its environment that it would only infect somebody in in, in you know a victim in the middle of brazil or something like that whatever in a certain environment with certain software running and blah 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 um, and even the same as like one of my favorite attacks, right? I think was, um, and thankfully we didn't see this, but when when I was at the bank, the Bangladesh bank heist happened, yeah. and that was one of my most favorite kind of situations or, or incidents in the in the in the global threat landscape was seeing that unfold. Uh, and and, ultimately, and and in fact I was showing this on another podcast the other day. Actually, I, I've got the, the, the indictment here, which is from whoa, yeah, you know, which I had pre- I just found it so fascinating to read through all of the uh all of the stuff from the FBI that's come out now. Um that's my kind of bedtime reading. Um but that piece of malware itself, how it compromised the the banking infrastructure, the Swift payment system, and how it oh, tidied yeah. up after itself and you know the encrypted resources it had, and all the rest of it, and I've got the malware, and it's it's fascinating to pick it apart. So, so cool. there's just it's it's one of those environments in the industry that is a gift that keeps giving, right? You never crack it, you never you never you never work out the bad guys are always doing something else, and it, it's it's a cat and mouse game that I just love.
0: So, so, so how many times have you deployed Nepenthes or Dionea?
1: <laughs> Dionea, I like, yeah, I've definitely. Um, that, that takes me back, um, Diane. I, I haven't deployed a honeypot like that for a little while, I'll be honest with you, but yeah, it's a good one.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I enjoy, I enjoy those. Nepenthes, I think was my first, uh, uh, honeypot that I deployed on a DMZ on a commercial connection. I,
1: I tell you, we've had some fun recently, actually with, with honeypot stuff. Um, we we've deployed some, some honeypot systems across our internal network just mm-hmm. to look for like malicious insider scanning or lateral movement, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the, the world that kind of recently opened to me was this, this honey token stuff, like the thinks canary all all the rest of it, which I think is really amazing. And something that we do actually, is we have, um, you know, canaries on our website. So Mm -hmm. if someone clones the site and hosts a phishing site, we'll get alerted, things like that as well. And that kind of stuff is just genius.
0: It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So I, simple I used, as well. I used to build a word list off of uh, Kippo and other, you know, brute force type honeypots to yeah. use on my pen test because they they were the most effective. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't have any more questions for Colin. Um, thanks again for for joining us, man. Like, just looking back over the past, I guess, six months, so much has happened, and it all started with you know sharing a couple of podcasts between the two of us. Um, some really great stuff has happened, um, and you know, like I told Ashers and and everybody else who is who's visited the podcast or been on a Discord, you guys are always welcome, twenty four seven Discord. Um, anytime you'll come on the podcast, Steve, we've kind of adopted Steve as one of the co hosts. Um, just you know, we we try to collect as many people that are passionate about their jobs and passionate about the industry, and and try to you know bring those people on to so our newcomers get exposure to what the industry is really like. Um, and the people that have that real passion that aren't working for a paycheck, we're doing this because we enjoy what we do. Um, and I want to make those people, you know, an asset to the newcomers to, to ask questions and and get involved. There's Steve. There's Um, there's the the man, the man, the it going, Steve? Hey, you okay. Everyone all right? Out of the shadows. Awesome. (laughs) Um, I I had a question. If that's all right, Mike. Yeah. Shoot, man, go ahead. So, um, I thought it would be appropriate given that Cole's interrogated me enough so far
3: <laughs> on his podcast. But you do loads of amazing stuff. You do things like this. You've got your YouTube channel,
0: all that sort of thing. How do you find the time to do it and be a rock star on your normal job as well? Yeah, I want to know this too.
1: Well, it's, it's very kind of you to say that. Um, well, time is definitely precious. I think it's, it's so important to um, be very conscious about how you spend your time. Um, you know, last couple of weeks, for example, I've been buried in Microsoft Exchange vulnerabilities like most of the world has. And so I've done nothing else. Um, but then I'm aware of that. And I've also got a family. Um, and so, you know, certainly with lockdown and homeschooling and things like that as well. That's that's definitely taken, you know, a, a good old percentage of the of the pie of life, as it were. So I, I think I'm certainly mindful about how much time I spend on different projects and what, what I've got coming up. Um, but I, I think I would imagine everybody here has the same mindset of like, this is a lifestyle, right? Yeah. It's not a job. So, you know, the, the kind of stuff you do in an evening outside of your work is is probably work. And it's probably, you know, <laughs> yeah. what, what, what you've been doing for the past eight hours. So um, I, I find it very easy. T- um, and and I, I must admit, and I will say that certainly my current employer are so um, supportive of the kind of additional activities that I do, the YouTube channels, the podcasts and things like that as well, and allow me the time and space to do it. But also most importantly is that my my family are as well, that my wife is, um, and she's super supportive of 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 this kind of uh initiative and 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 'cause she knows that it, it really helps me be happy and, and mm. kind of um you know I'm not bored at home, you know, watching Coronation Street or whatever. So <laughs> um so yeah I, I guess you know if I get to play with my computer for a few hours a day, then then everyone's happy. So
0: <laughs> it's definitely a, it's definitely a lifestyle for sure. So yeah. your new company, they're understanding about your time. Now, new company, are, are they as understanding as Steve was? Uh, absolutely, yeah. I I think
1: well, um, you know, working with Steve, we were in a pressure. We were in the trenches there together for for a number of years. <laughs> but what I think that taught us was the value of the time spent elsewhere with your family and your friends and for sure. and, and that kind of downtime as well, because the burnout within the industry is very real. Yeah. Um, so I, I wouldn't change that experience for anything.
0: Yeah. I, I think that our, our experience with the financial institution actually overlapped the three of us because I went back and checked my resume after we had that last podcast. And I was like, Oh, I forgot to add my contracting years on there as well, so <laughs> I'm sure we worked and, and we're on the same calls for at least a year, um, which is interesting. So that is interesting. That yeah it, it was really cool, you know and I think connecting those dots and and thinking about the guys in Chicago that that were in charge of you know the the malware and, and Intel um, the guy's last name was the name of a fruit. That's all I can say about that guy. Um I know you know who I'm talking about. I know him. I know him. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, great guy and um the the teams there were were really were really good. Uh but again, it goes to show that even though you have threat intelligence, you have red teaming, you have uh, supply chain security, you have vulnerability assessment, it doesn't prevent insider threat. Um it doesn't prevent mm. you from being hacked or being denial of service. Uh it's just one of those things we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Um, so any questions from the crowd online? We have one. My question for Colin, how does the ISP deal with security for critical customers dealing with special requests? Money? That's, a
1: great, that's a great question. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, what, what kind of requests do we think we're talking about here?
0: I'm, I'm thinking just from reading the question, I'm thinking that, you know, a security request or, or some sort of incident. And I, I, I know as far as, you know, some of the ISPs I've worked for here in the US is that those corporate customers pay a lot for drop teams, parachute teams, cert teams, and really mm-hmm. security. So I think that the delineation between, you know, the support that I would get if I called up and the support you know, let's say Microsoft would get is completely different, but that's based on, you know, how much money you're paying for the connection itself.
1: Yeah. I, I guess we don't really have that kind of relationship, if you like, with our, our critical customers. We know who the big clients are, put it that way. Yeah. Uh, and and certainly, I guess this week is a prime example with Exchange. I mean, thankfully we, we were not impacted at all by the Exchange vulnerability, but that that's doesn't good. mean to say that we you know, almost every single one of our major accounts came to us and said, were you impacted? Can you prove you weren't? What have you done? Give us some assurance. Yeah. (laughs) And you're proven a negative. Um, but you know, there is, uh, what's nice is to actually present the strength of your controls. you can say, Mm. you know, this is the maturity journey that we've been on. These are the people, the process, the technologies that we have, here's all of the checks that we've made. We think we're golden. Um, and, and this is why, so we have an awful lot of that, um, and th- that's kind of the, the the stuff that we see. Certainly, after solar winds, exchange stuff, whatever. That's the that's the kind of interactions that we have with our major clients.
0: Yeah, I think the tough ones to explain are something like Heartbleed. Um, Heartbleed, I found really difficult to explain to our SOC customers that we weren't vulnerable. First of all, and second of all, it wasn't just an exploit where you could point click and you know get re- mm. remote shell. It was actually a complicated attack. Um, so explaining those specter
1: meltdown and things like that as well, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. Explaining those to, to clients sometimes can be really difficult because what the media does is put a spin on it. Like it's this huge critical flaw that everybody in the world is vulnerable and websites are going down as we speak. When in actuality, yeah, most of the servers in the world were vulnerable, but the com- the complexity of the attack and what it took to carry out was not really, you know, something that everybody could carry out by themselves. Um, so the communication from a SOC to, to clients can be difficult sometimes. Um, I always found it interesting to communicate with clients when there was a child pornography issue on one of the remote sites. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I, I think it was just a couple of days ago, the data center that a lot of that activity came out of actually burned to the ground. Um, yeah, OBA, right? <laughs> yeah, I yeah. saw that on the news, and I was like, "Wait a minute, I know those guys. Like, I, I know those guys who work in that building." Um, yeah, get involved. That was my least favorite part of working in a SOC as a sock director was taking over investigations for child pornography or child abuse or anything anything of that mm. nature, because you have to round up enough data to get to law enforcement, and it was just not something fun that, that I enjoyed doing. But, yeah thank,
1: thankfully I've only ever dealt with one of those situations in my time here um, and, and we dealt with it with a with a zero tolerance approach as you can well imagine yeah. Yeah. but also what I quite like is and, and I would encourage people to check them out is the, there is a, a um, an organization that we partner with called the Internet Watch Foundation, the yeah. iwF mm-hmm. um, and they run some hackathons now and again where they're crying out for people developers coders you know hackers red teamers whatever. Um, to write help write them some software and solve some really basic problems um, to, to help them consume all of this data because they've got so much of it so yeah exactly. I, I've been involved with them for a little while and I encourage people to check them out and help out help out as well.
0: Yeah, I'll have to check out that uh, check out that link after the show. Um, so anybody else have questions for Colin Colin is like a, a fountain of knowledge. Uh, we've had some really good conversations on on some of the podcasts. So
1: oh, you, you're too kind uh, but I, I would I would reverse that compliment yeah. if i'm honest with you but i um i i've, I've enjoyed my time here This has been a, this is such a great community and i'm I'm really um really flattered to be invited along tonight and I appreciate all of the questions as well It's been real fun
0: man man anytime you want to come back, we have a co-host spot waiting for you um, I, I try it. to bring in everybody that that has you know a good amount of knowledge and experience and and give them some sort of like co-host or or host spot to where you know, if someone has a question, they can, you know, go to you guys to, to find out the answers or, or you know, if someone gets hung up, you know, we can direct them in the right direction. Um,
2: so Colin, what are my last question for you is what are like your top three best practices that you would um, give to people in their everyday life to kind of stay cyber safe?
1: Great. Oh, wow. What a question to finish on. Um, that's a real tough one that I think.
2: Because stay... I'm going to take what you tell me and implement it. <laughs> I'm always getting <laughs> tips from people like, how do I stay cyber safe? You know?
1: Well, I think um, I would say use a password manager. That's probably a good, a good tip nowadays, which password manager is probably up for debate, but um, at least use something which would be better than nothing. Um, I think really what I would encourage certainly people in this uh, kind of quorum that we have here today is to share your knowledge, right? Amongst the industry, because we're all, we're all kind of technical in our own ways. We've all got knowledge about the industry and how to, you know, what kind of threats we see and what we can protect ourselves against make some content, write a blog, make a video, write some tweets, whatever, and just share your ideas with people. And I I honestly think there's not enough of that in the industry. Um, And I personally, learn so much from people when they when they share these ideas um and and these comments and questions and stuff like that so i think that's a huge part of it and i guess number three would just be just you know get involved with as many communities like this as possible and just soak it all up because you you'll personally you'll learn and develop but also hopefully as well you'll 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 help others to learn and develop by imparting your knowledge as well awesome Thank yeah. you
2: so much. It's it's been super fun. Thank I've you. I've learned so much, and I, I love the way that you're very articulate and with some of your um, explanations and how you explain things.
1: That's very kind. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed I've enjoyed my time. Thank you very very much indeed.
3: So-
0: Thank you, Colin. <laughs> so the second half of the podcast, I usually do a hacking demo, or you know some sort of technical demo, but I got up, I guess it was 9 o'clock in the morning earlier this week, and interviewed a guy that is a retired colonel from the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. And he was the head of their cyber unit. Um, Colonel Oren Eaton um, is his last name. He's from Israel. So I spent an hour with him speaking. Um, I'm going to upload the video of me and uh, Colonel Eaton to YouTube, but uh, we can watch that really quick. If you guys want to sit in and and continue watching, um, let me know in the chat if you guys want to watch this video and I'll go ahead and, and share it and we can get into that interview as well. All right, I'm going to go ahead and put it on. Let me get the screen started here. Give me a second. All right. Zoom sharing is so much fun, by the way. Mm -mm -mm. Let's see. Let's talk to... I right, am going to share my audio so you guys can hear what he's saying. Um, hopefully, you'll be able to hear. Let me know if you guys can't hear the video once it starts. Can everybody hear okay? I don't think we hear it. Okay. All right, let me change the audio. Actually, I don't think I'm gonna be able to share the audio because it comes to a different audio source. So what I'll do is I'll go ahead and um, upload this to YouTube so everybody can uh, watch it. Sorry, the audio didn't work. Um, Kind of figured it wouldn't. So I'll just open it up for discussion. For the remainder of the podcast, and you know, you guys feel free to uh, ask questions or, or start any topic. Yeah, and I am on the verge of killing my router. Um, so, this router has dropped connection on me at least three times this week during conferences. Um, so,
3: uh, three times today.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> tonight. It, Three times today, and so if you guys know anybody who works for Nomad Internet in the U.S., <laughs> uh, maybe send them a, a little email talking about how much you wish their service was better. Okay. Um,
3: what I want to say to, uh, it, <clears throat> to our team is uh, we've got some giveaways tonight. Yes, giveaways. Once again, once again, we've got three uh, T-shirts. Uh, two medium men, one medium lady um, well I mean ladies is already taken because uh, I did draw um, apart from that we've gonna, uh, we're gonna uh, we've got the we're not being sponsored by any vendor, but I've got the voucher for a one year subscription of Bitdefender total for five uh, devices. So whoever uh, writes first on chat gets it.
0: That and let me review Range Force really quick as well. Um, we gave out five licenses for Range Force, um, but there's going to be more licenses. I know there's a question that came up earlier. How do you get a license for Range Force on Cyber Fortress? I'm working on that. Um working with uh, Range Force and the president of that company. To make Haunted Hacker, uh, basically anybody who joins the community will get a license to their platform. Um, wow. They want to hit fifty thousand users by the end of this year, and I think between our efforts and their efforts, we can surpass that pretty easy. Um, but yeah, the 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 Range Force deal was it couldn't have couldn't have came at a better time, and the guys there at Range Force are just amazing they're, they're really great to work with
3: yeah uh, i signed up for a for a community edition mm-hmm. i got and i got called you know it's like oh yeah do you need any help etc i was like wow um uh, what i'm doing here in in london you know we've I've, you know it's 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 like you know um we've got the merchandise quite a lot of merchandise in london you know i don't want to I, I don't want to sound racist or anything you know it's because i I wanted to send some merchandise to US, but then 30 pounds, 20 pounds, I said, oh, I'm looking for someone over there, um, for a company there.
0: Well, we can we can do that here, yeah. Nemo, Um as far as like sending stuff out. I have a few things I need to send out, um, a few okay. pieces of merchandise, but we can cover the US side. We just okay. need the London side and i need to get with ryan so that we can uh maintain Australia. the australian merchandise um but for those of you who are new tonight um we don't charge for anything um, and the, any access should i say we, we don't charge for videos access to podcast youtube and all that stuff um we accept donations through patreon and we have a merchandise store where you can get um, our logo uh hoodies Everything from hoodies to uh, onesie outfits for your for your infant with a logo <laughs> on it, which I think is really yeah. cool. Uh, so yeah, I mean, if you're interested in that, let me know. We have a link tree with all that exactly. stuff.
3: Exactly. We've got we've got lots of freebies uh, uh, in London know, yeah. because I, I've got a friend that runs the company that does this and that, and you know, and I, I get it, I get it from from him at the cost. Mm-hmm. And the only cost, uh, you know, I, I I can send it to everyone. The only cost I would like to, to basically have, is just a postage. You know, I've got a lot, lots of stuff coming in. There'll be like uh, hunted hacker uh, uh, ch- uh, power banks. Uh, we've got uh, hats. We've got the mugs, etc. Multiple designs. The best ones are with uh, with uh, with a kind of foundation of our podcast with a fingerprint. Yeah. Because so I, wh- I'm about to take the picture. You know, there'll be like 15 marks, maybe five, four, three, two, one, okay. and the, the ones on the on the bottom will be with a finger a fingerprint. This is what created it.
0: <laughs> cool. Very cool. So one th- another thing I wanted to, to point out too, range force did something really cool and above and beyond what most, com- most companies would do. Um, can you hear me? Oh, my connection is unstable again. Um, anyway, so range force um, actually went above and beyond when it came to one of our viewers who is 11 years old. He actually reached out to the 11 year, 11 year olds parents wrote a personal note to the 11 year old and gave him a free unlimited license for the cyber fortress, which I thought was really cool. You know, like there's not a whole lot of companies that that come on that are like, Hey, yo, you know, we, we want to help out kids to, to train them to, to be the next level. Um, and what I found really cool is that, that range force, they didn't expect anything in return, which, You know, to me, that that shows that they're really dedicated to building the industry and building a community. Um, So Nomad and I had probably about an hour long conversation with them about the future of Haunted Hacker and about the future of Range Force. And it looks like it's going to be pretty exciting. One thing I did want to do before we start giving stuff out um, and I forgot to do earlier colin I don't know if you're still on. I see your your icon. But is there any questions you have for me, Trammy, or the rest of the ghosts and ghouls that are hanging out in the uh, podcast right now?
1: Well, yeah, I I think um I'm so keen to learn about what is on the kind of immediate roadmap for the haunted hacker community. What what's what's next? What's coming up that I that I I want to share with the rest of the world as well.
0: And like it, to be honest with you, this whole thing, like I told you in the podcast, in the interview, this whole thing was kind of like a fluke, right? It was more of sitting around drinking some bourbon and hey, wouldn't it be cool to have a podcast? And it kind of blew up. Um, I I think where this is going is more of a test bed uh, for and training bed for people getting into the industry, Um, starting to partner with a lot of companies who are fairly new, but provide that type of insight and training to corporations and, and to people who are established in the industry. But there's not a lot of people who are doing it for people who aren't established in the industry. And I think that's where this is headed is getting that, that training, getting that knowledge, getting that, the, the documents and data to filter down to these people coming into the industry to give them, you know, a heads up or, or give them, you know, a, you know, one step ahead of the competition that they're going to face when they go to apply for jobs. Uh, and to me, that's, that's uber important because I don't have a degree. Um, I challenged all of my certs and I, I don't have a lot of faith in the certification industry. So the more training and knowledge that we can pass on from here would be fantastic. We've spread from the time that I was on your podcast, we have spread from the U S to Australia we have a big following in Australia, as well as the UK. And I've seen people log in from Italy, from Portugal, South America, uh, India. So it's really becoming like a more of a global community where it goes from here. And I always say this is that I am only here to, to, to keep it going and to kind of like provide the platform. But this is not my podcast. This is everybody else. This is everybody else's uh, community. Like, I, I don't dictate what goes into the community. I, I don't want to dictate any of it. You know, I want people to, to take control of what we're doing and build on it like Damo has, you know, with the merchandise. Um, it's difficult being a podcast that doesn't have financial backing. And I know, Colin, you, you've experienced that same, probably that same pressure as to how do I do this how do I fund this? You know, what do I do when it gets to a point where I have to look for funding? Um, those thoughts cross my mind. And, you know, we're looking at a few different avenues, but I really just want to keep it as free as possible for as long as possible. Um, when I feel like I have to start charging is when I feel like I've lost my, my purpose, to be honest with you. Exactly. So, but know i'll take this podcast wherever the community wants it to go yeah
2: i know i know know the first podcast was on halloween so my only request is that we can like do a halloween reunion Mm -hmm. where we get all of our guests to kind of join in and do a halloween and dress up
0: absolutely that would be so cool Actually. That'd be amazing. So yeah. that's
2: that's what I because <laughs> Halloween's my favorite holiday and Mike said the first podcast was on Halloween. So It I was, was like
0: absolutely Let's was. do it
2: this year. Let's do it. I already I, have a costume. It's so fun. I can't. That's
0: wait. actually where the name came from. The Haunted Hacker Podcast was the fact yeah. that it was coming up. Halloween was coming up, and we were going to launch it on Halloween. Yeah. But then it grew into more of a meaningful, I guess, uh, purpose. So.
2: So. so yeah mark your calendars if you can you and steve can come back on halloween night that would be fun
1: yep i'll, I'll carve a special p- pumpkin or yeah oh, no problem yeah. pumpkin halloween.
0: carving contest for halloween next year <laughs> absolutely oh, that'll yeah. be
2: fun that'll yeah. be fun it could be real. like a mini pumpkin
0: exactly colin don't forget to uh,
3: give us your postage details so we can send you the trade gift
1: very kind thanks damo yeah appreciate no problem you.
3: no problem
0: yeah just no. shoot just shoot me an email call and, and i'll get you make sure you get your stuff um so anybody else we have so many people online with us right now that that have been former guests or members like she she's been coming back ever since he got interviewed weeks ago um lucas i mean it's just it amazes me every time I look at how many people we have live as opposed to what we started with. Um, I think we started with like, I want to say there was like 10 or 15 people that were live that night. And I think our podcast maybe got 50 views and it went from that to hundreds. And I think tonight we have close to 30 people online. So it's really good. Um, and anything else that we can help, our guests out with as far as like you know being a, a sounding board for you know organizational issues, or if you're looking for to fill a position, you know we may have that person sitting here listening to the podcast. So feel free to reach out and, and rattle some chains.
3: Yep, so, I will. Post, I will post two jobs uh, that I've been just advised by one of the people I used to work for. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: So, on, so Damo, on the Discord, um, if you want to create it or if somebody else wants to create job, a jobs board that we can throw those, those opportunities up onto, as well as um, people who want to post their CVs uh, for potential, potential uh, jobs. So just let the newcomers know that are online right now that we have CISOs and we have, I think I've interviewed probably five or six CISOs so far. Uh, for the podcast. Um, and we constantly have people coming in from different companies onto the discord. So if you post your CV, I'll make sure to put an announcement on social media that we're now, um, you know, giving access to potential new employee CVs, uh, which I think will go over really well. All right. So that's it. I don't have anything else. I'm going to upload the interview with, uh, Colonel Eaton, so that you guys can can watch it. I'll do that right now. It's about an hour long. It's a really great conversation. We actually talked about the Israeli Defense Forces, as well as, of course, I had to bring up Stuxnet and ask about Stuxnet. Uh, but it was a really good conversation. Um, and, of course, they, they want to come back as well. One of the kudos that I got from uh, Colonel Eaton and his staff was the fact that our podcast had saturated the internet, um, which I was really shocked with. Uh, I asked them, you know, how they heard about us and, and you know, w- what their deal was. And they said that they really wanted on the podcast. And I said, how'd you hear about us? And they said, well, after your show last year, uh, it just became really saturated on the internet. Like everybody was talking about it, which I had no, no clue until we got compromised. And then I realized why people were talking of uh, but with that said, I'm going to sign off. Um, I will see you guys next Saturday. And hey, Thanks, uh, Mike. Absolutely. And, Damo, if you want to uh, hold on to the, to the giveaways until yep. we get into the Discord, let's set up something yep. on Discord for Monday. I'll do a trivia, no and problem. people can email the answers to the trivia to me, and the winners will get giveaways. Uh, exactly. Uh, okay. I no think that would be good. That, that way we kind of push people to, to go out and look stuff yeah. up and, and learn something. Exactly. Um, exactly. Again, thank you guys. And I will see you next week. Next week. Thank you. Bye, Thanks, guys. Thanks,
2: everyone. Have a great Thanks. Saturday.
0: Thanks Bye. again, Trami. Thanks for everything.
2: Awesome. Bye, guys. Bye.